Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Well, Charles, uh, welcome. Thanks for being with us today on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. And I'm, I'm excited for this conversation as I've had a chance to get to know you a little bit through reading and through the content that you put out. Tell us briefly, give us like your kind of three-minute testimony about coming to Christ and your life therein. And then when you actually came to Jesus and come, coming along and meeting him, what, yeah. what was that process like? Well, I was fortunate that my parents were Christians. They were raised us in a Christian home. Of course, I was a church. I was one of those Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night kind of kids. And um, when I was like six or seven in my tradition, you would walk down the aisle and shake hands with the pastor and he would, you know, welcome into the church and you would uh, then be dumped a couple of weeks later. That happened to me at age six or seven. Over the years, even though I went to church, there was this like subtle void in my heart and my soul. And later in life, like, age 17, something like that. Some friends of mine invited me to their church. They were having this meeting. And this guy named Freddie Gage was the speaker. Freddie Gage uh, had a ministry in Houston. It was called Pulpit in the Shadows. And basically, he ministered on the streets to drug addicts and homeless people, uh, prostitutes, and went, went them to the Lord, got them back on their feet. Well, that night, he knew how to communicate and connect with somebody my age fully explain the gospel. And that's when it really clicked for me. I placed my faith in Jesus in, was biblically baptized a couple of weeks later. And so that's kind of it in a, a nutshell. And uh, when I got into college, I actually joined a Christian fraternity, believe it or not, that sounds like an oxymoron. Mm. <laughs> but that was a springboard into me really growing in my faith because it was in Atlanta at Georgia Tech. And on Sunday nights, I was able to go to hear Dr. Stanley preach. And so that's kind of it in a, a nutshell. Grew up in the church, but didn't really know Jesus until later in life. Sure. You know what? Well, we got to text uh, on the side and I referenced, you know, you being at Georgia Tech and asking about Bobby Crimmins. So I've had the pleasure of going, I want to say that it's about seven Final Fours. And uh, back in the day, I think it was in, oh. I don't remember if it was in New Orleans or if it was in Dallas, um, back when uh, Crimmins was coaching Georgia Tech. I had a chance to meet him. And I said yeah. over and over and over, my favorite thing about the Final Four was going to the hotels and meeting the college basketball coaches and announcers and whatnot. And Bobby Crimmins was like the greatest guy. He was just incredible. In fact, Springfield, really? where I live, one of our all-time great high school basketball players graduated from Georgia Tech, a kid named Jason Collier, who sadly died a number of years ago. He had mm -hmm. an enlarged heart thing, but he finished his – college basketball career at Georgia Tech. So there's some Springfield, Ohio love for Georgia Tech based on that. But Crimmins was a great, yeah. just super generous man. Oh, man, those were great years when he coached. Yeah, so fun stuff to talk about there inside. And I have to say with your testimony story, as you were telling that story, I thought, man, who wouldn't have loved to have in their testimony a guy named Freddie Gage? What a great name that is. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it's a cool name. I'm like, man, where was Freddie in my life? I like to say that. That's cool. So, Charles, I, I referenced earlier, I love your writing, and that's how I've kind of gotten acquainted to you. I think 
you know, through some stuff through either church leaders and uh, Christianity Today, your name popped up over the years on a few things I read. And I really appreciate on your blog, you do a really good job of writing like very short content. You know, I'm several paragraphs in and I'm like, okay, where's the rest of it? There's obviously page two or page three. And it's like, oh, that was it. He said what needed to say and I'm left wanting more. So talk a little bit about content creation, mm-hmm. that way your writing process, and then we'll get into a little bit. You obviously invest time and effort in speaking, coaching, consulting, and how do you kind of pick and choose your spots with, you know, where you're going to invest time and what those processes look like? Yes, yeah, great question. I actually, one of the key pivot points for me during the week is Sunday afternoon. I, I don't go take a nap. Well, I'll take a, a short nap, but I use that time to pl- really plan out my week. Now, I've already planned my week out in basic blocks of time, but I, I fine-tune it. But the way I do my writing, blogging is, is relatively easy. It's 500 words or less. Sometimes they'll come out of sermons. Sometimes I'll take something I wrote years ago and, and tweak that. And that happens really, really pretty easily. Then I, I do just post it regularly. It's on my calendar, Monday afternoon, you post them. Where the real discipline comes in is when I'm writing a book. And uh, I think I've written six. I got one coming out in the fall. I I'm not one of these like uh, platforms of an Andy Stanley, but I just enjoy writing because it. But I think it really helps people and it helps helps pastors because that's kind of where I, I target my writing. But it comes down to pure discipline for me. I'm not your super super creative guy. I'm about a B plus writer, but I plan my week and Fridays is my day off. You know, my main job is still a pastor, but Fridays. My day off, that's my writing time. So basically, I block out several hours on Fridays to do my writing. Now, I'm preparing for my writing. I'm always, I have on my uh, iPhone this little app called Outliner. So if I have a current project I'm working on, I open up a little outline. And then ideas that come, I drop them in there. When I do my research, I use a program called Zotero, which kind of captures all of your articles and are, you know, links you want to look at. And so it comes down to, Simply discipline. And when I start, it's like, do I really want to spend five hours doing this? But once you get started, it begins to flow and the ideas begin to come. So that's kind of how I do it. I don't have a a place in the woods or or a place on the beach where I do my writing. It's discipline, but there's great joy in seeing seeing the end result. But I always tell people, if you want to write, be sure to keep your day job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you're probably not going to make a living from it. So a few people do. Well, you know, one of my favorite topics is rest and kind of rhythms. And I was reading a book on vacation recently and talked about the pace of grace. How, how do you, I would think for a lot of people in ministry, and I, you know, I can relate to this personally. If I, if I said Friday's my day off and I'm going to take time to write on Friday, I would think that would easily bleed back into getting work done. So how do you, I mean, are you pretty disciplined that way in a healthy way where you just say, okay, I'm not going to let this drift back into ministry or working on a sermon when you're writing, or how do you kind of balance that out? Well, uh, my undergrad degrees in engineering and systems engineering. So I think systems, I'm a pretty good time manager. I get up early in the morning. I get up at 5.15 uh, in the morning and on, I get up at 4.15 on Fridays when I do my writing and I'm doing working with PhD right now. So that's where we're taking a lot of my writing time. But because I spend that Sunday afternoon planning and I block out my weeks and my days knowing what must be accomplished, I find I don't get myself backed up, like mm-hmm. even sermon preparation. I'm three or four weeks ahead because I've planned it that way, because there will always be that emergency week that will 
encroach upon your normal schedule. Sure. So by planning ahead, and it takes a while. If someone's not used to this, it takes a while to do that. It helps you develop a good, healthy rhythm. And when the day is done, it's like, okay, I accomplished some things. And that that actually physically feels good when you're able to accomplish those things mm-hmm. and look back on it. So you know, I'm a pretty good time manager and I'm I go to bed, Jeff. I go to bed before nine o'clock. Wow. So that helps too. I, you know, I watch a program or something, but I'm in the bed early and up early. And that allows me to get pretty much what I believe I need to get done without being stressed. Wow. I love your discipline. I can tell you're very self aware and understand yourself well. I think I used to be when I did youth ministry for years, I was a late night guy. Now I've kind of transitioned more into morning guy, but I'm thinking, man, I hope you tape inside the NBA or something like that on Thursday nights because I can't imagine missing the, the good – I'm a big basketball and football fan. I can't imagine missing some of the late-night basketball that's going to happen beyond 9 p.m. So, well, tell us a little bit more about the coaching and consulting because I know, you know, my stage of life and the people I have relationships with who are in ministry, I'm seeing more and more people wanting coaching and obviously consulting can go kind of hand-in-hand in that. So you obviously have a full plate. So how does – coaching and consulting fit in there? And then what's kind of tell me about your passion to be even spend the time there. Well, my primary focus right now is preaching, leading a church out of COVID. And we talk about that a little bit later. It's been interesting uh, working on this PhD and I've limited my coaching because of the other things I'm doing. But when I am in, in a heavy coaching time, I really focus on pastors. And I, what I think is so beautiful about coaching is first it's consulting. Consulting is more telling Here's how you, you solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly uh, an important part of, of what I do and enjoy doing. But coaching, it's, it's, I find it so valuable in that it creates greater ownership mm-hmm. in that pastor, in that the coaching process guides that pastor to define the challenges that he faces and come up with the solutions to those. And when those aha moments happen, because I have real passion about the brain, the motivation is much greater versus me and my, with my consulting hat, which is still you know, necessary. Instead of me telling them the answer, even though I may have the answer, if I can guide them in that self-discovery, it's a very powerful way to evoke change and create motivation to uh, do what needs to be done to solve that problem or mm. you know, climb that hill. Yeah, I like how you really separated those. So I think there's a lot of words even in, in church culture, that we can substitute one for the other, and they are very different. I think from what my understanding is, you really, you know, I think nailed well coaching and consulting and what's different there. So you hit on COVID, so we obviously have mm-hmm. to talk about that. So what is it like? And you're in Canada, you're in Ontario, not here in the United States or in Ohio, even though you're from here. What what has that been like? What's COVID been like in your experience, you know, both you know, as a man, as a leader, as a family man in ministry? What has that yeah. been like in the last year? Well, we're behind the states, and it's it's very. We've been in the lockdowns more than in the states, much much more. There's a much more conservative perspective. But when it hit, actually, we were on vacation. We were at the beach right before we got shut down. I was following it. You know, instead of just enjoying the beach time, I was had my nose on my iPhone following this, and I said, Cheryl, something's really afoot here. Mm-hmm. We got back on the Thursday, and then the word was no toilet paper, no toilet paper. So mm-hmm. we went to the grocery store. And we bought like the one pack of toilet paper left, a pack of four for 20 bucks. Like, good grief. But anyway, so we did that. Next day, everything was shut down in Canada. Had emergency staff meetings, said, guys, we're shut down. We had to uh, move into the COVID world. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of what I'm about to say, but for 25 days straight, I worked. 
I don't usually do that, but when the dam is breaking, the leader's got to be there. You can't say, oh, I'm, I'm off while mm-hmm. everybody's getting swept away. So about two months in, I had my black hole experience, what I call my black hole experience. I was like, oh, my life is going to be different. Ministry is not going to be different. This is not what I signed up for. And I had a huge, huge pity party. I was about probably 60 days in. But what got me out of that was a couple of things. Well, obviously, the Lord got me out of it. But I readjusted my expectations. Mm. By that, I mean the church that we built and we had loved these past seven years was not going to be as big as it once was. And, you know, we pastors, we like, we like larger numbers. So I had to be okay with those expectations. Secondly, I talked to my doctor and he prescribed a low dose SSRI. Now SSRI stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's like Prozac is one of the most common ones because I was so depleted. Mm. I needed, and, and the serotonin was not hanging around in my brain as long as I needed to. And basically what these drugs do, it kind of makes the, neurotransmitters hang around more. That was a huge help for me too. Mm. So personally, I had to deal with some inner, a reset of expectations and I needed some medication. And I tell, I I say that to our church, say folks, sometimes you need medication. That's okay. Mm. You know, it's not a thing to be ashamed of. So that's kind of from the personal side, from the leadership side. I had to practice the Stockdale paradox, which I'm sure you've heard about. Stockdale was a general who was, I think he was a general at the time. Uh, no, no, he wasn't general, but he was high up in the military in the U.S., uh, prisoner war in the, in the Vietnam War. And he noticed something after the fact, after he got out, he noticed this, that the guys who were super optimistic and were saying, hey, we'll be out of here by Christmas, most of them died. Mm. But the guys who kept hope like, well, we're going to get it here one day, but it is so hard now they lived. So the paradox is recognizing and calling out the difficulty yet keeping hope. So I had to practice that with our staff facing reality. We changed our staff meeting where we just talked a lot. We did less task stuff. We talked a lot. So I balanced realism with hope. And that was a huge, huge help, I think, to our staff and to me as well, because we all had to reset our expectations. So that was a real learning uh, through that time for me. I tell you what, I could end this podcast right now. What you just said there, I think is worth everything because I think it's so easy to think about the first side of that and be extremely positive and hopeful or whatever. And, you know, what do you hear most people say about leadership? The first thing you have to do is set a very accurate, descriptive, this is a reality kind of picture. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I've, I love Canada. I've wanted to go there way more than I have. So maybe I'll just get my resume ready. I'm going on a bit sabbatical this summer. My, my board might say, <laughs> hey, we'll help you get your resume ready. Um, hopefully not. <laughs> anyway, I, I really appreciate what you said there and how you led in that time there, Charles. So mm-hmm. tell me about this. I, you know, I'm really curious because, like I said, my, my oldest son is 17. He's got a huge infatuation with Toronto. He's become a Raptors fan. He's a big movie guy, so he likes – the culture part of Toronto and just, you know, Canada in general, I think Americans can tend to have a fondness and just the um, humor and whatnot of Canada. What is it like as you lead up there? What is it like to be a follower, reproducer, disciple of Jesus in Canada compared to America? What's that like? What's the same? What's different? Mm -hmm. Great question. Well, we really love living up here in Canada. I was in Chicagoland before, enjoyed Chicagoland, and temperature, you know, relatively the same. So we love living up here. We 
we find the culture very kind and accepting, not everybody, you know, <laughs> they're sinners just like Americans are sinners, mm-hmm. but very kind and accepting. They love our accent, especially my wife. She's from Mississippi. And oh. this is really funny. This has really happened a couple of times, Jeff. She'll be in the store talking and the clerk will say something like, I love your accent. Will you just keep talking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that helps a little bit. The number of Christians percentage-wise that we would call like in evangelical, I know that's not the great word today, but that helps define is like 9% here in Canada, much less than, than the U.S. And I, I found that the culture, we, we're kind of under the radar, Christians. We're in the U.S. It's much more, you know, especially in the last election with the conflicts and, and some of the big names falling. Here, it's not as conflictual. People are less outwardly vocal, like put up your dukes. Mm. Even I noticed the fonts and headlines in the in the online news. You know, you look at CNN or Fox or MSNBC, they're like strong fonts and mm. strong headlines. They're much more subdued here. So that's really been a really refreshing. I love my country. I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a permanent resident of here. But the, the biggest leadership difference I saw, and I was smart enough to ask a question. First week I was here. One of the board members asked me to go to breakfast, and this meeting was with leadership in the city plus pastors. And so I went, you know, they had a speaker. Afterwards, I met a pastor of a local church. I said, listen, I'm new here. I, I don't know Canadian culture. What would you recommend that I do? He says, well, you know, there's some guys, some guys that have come from the States and really just blown it and, and left. They failed. He said, I, I said, think the number one thing you ought to do is really have a collaborative leadership style. Now, in the U.S., and I'm not trying to be monolithic and create a you know, the blanket statement here, but I think in the States, there may be a little more of the top-down kind of leadership, like I'm the leader, I'm the pastor, do what I, do what I say. Again, I'm, I'm not, not, I don't want to overstate that, but I applied that. I really worked to be collaborative with our board and with our staff. It's been a really good experience. We've had problems, certainly. But I'd say that's one of the biggest differences I have noticed. Well, two differences, the the less abrasive Canadians are mm. and the desire for more collaborative leadership. And so it's, it's been quite, quite effective in my experience these past seven years. You know, when I think of Canada and I think of, you know, what's different, kind of the humor, Jimmy Kimmel, I don't know if you saw it. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up back during the NBA finals when the Raptors played Golden State. He did kind of a man on the street asking some questions of people in Toronto and, and uh, just what, and I'm like, I've got some friends who are Canadian. I'm just like, I love listening to them talk and their humor. And there's kind of a, a smart, quippy, kind of silly laugh at themselves, but then there's a lot of pride in it too. And, you know, I've been to Toronto a couple of times and really love that city and really wanted to go to Vancouver when one of the yeah. cheaper airlines used to fly a lot of cheap flights there. But that, I think that airline's now gone, but it's interesting hearing your perspective on that mm-hmm. because, you know, being a guy who grew up in the South for a number of years and a part of the Bible belt, you know, quite honestly, there's something really exciting about what you're saying, because I like kind of the downplaying of stuff, but I, I think sometimes as followers of Jesus, we always want to be in a majority, and there is something nice about being in a minority. I mean, you got to mm-hmm. be bolder. you got to really live for Jesus. You're right. The, the, even the under-the-radar thing you're talking about, I think we don't appreciate where there you know, is the value in that. So let me transition yeah. here. Yeah. I like to have a little fun, and I do a thing called the Rapid Five. So these are just kind of some playful, what comes to your brain first, answer the question, roll with it, get a laugh or two out of this. So, uh, Charles, what's your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Trick cereal. Tricks. Ooh. It's amazing when I ask this question, the fruity (laughs) 
cereals that people loved. Okay. So do you have a snack as well besides <laughs> tricks? Uh, probably popcorn made with the old popcorn makers. Oh, wow. So you're going old school and just traditional and yeah, we've gotten spoiled and have a whole lot of different versions of that. Well, now you were in Chicago, so I guess you got to say, hopefully there's no legalities when I say this name and you have to like Garrett's, right? Well, actually the Chicago hot dog, that is, that is the one that uh, I fell in love with. Not Garrett's uh, popcorn? So, well, you know, a couple of times I had that in oh, one of those Garrett's wow. places, but like, yeah, popcorn. Yeah, I get yeah, There's you. not this great range. You know, yeah. popcorn is popcorn. This is really bad popcorn. <laughs> it's true. You know, it's funny. I go to Costco and and uh, and Samsung, and they do have a couple versions there of the the caramel cheese. They're pretty good. I'm like, yeah, it, I guess it does. It's mm-hmm. cheaper and it beats waiting in that three hour long line. It seems like that you always have a Garrett. So I get you on that one. So second uh-huh. question: What is? And I guess you can't say one of your own. Maybe you would want to say you're one of your own here. But what is your favorite book you most want to give to other people? Well, I actually put down my mindfulness book is the, the one I've gifted the most. But if I think uh, outside that, I would say the one that I have recommended the most would be Healing of Damaged Emotions by David Siemens. It is an old mm, yeah. book, probably 30 years old, but it profoundly impacted my life. And I've recommended that often. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I can't wait to jump into some other meaty stuff about writing here with you in a minute about mindfulness. But okay, now here's a big question. This is very, very personal to me. I always have to stress this. So I've got four kids under the age 18. One turns 18 in a couple weeks. And when we go on vacation, you can never time the lunch stop perfect. You're either going to get some traffic or you get going too fast. And then it's like, all of a sudden, you know, my daughter's got to go to the bathroom or something. It's like, okay, we got to stop. And now, and I'm coming up on the exit and I see the signs and it says McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, and we'll go West Coast here a little bit, In-N-Out Burger. Where is the Stone family going to stop? Easy answer, Chick-fil-A. Man, don't we feel like we have to say that? If we know Jesus, it's almost like we have to say that. Like either we think Dan <laughs> Kathy's coming after us. Oh, I mean it. Oh, man, I love Chick-fil-A. So what are you getting there? What's the, what's the uh, go-to, this is what you always order there? Usually I get just the standard chicken sandwich and the waffle fries and the drink. And that's usually like a, a combo. Now, they used to have this breakfast kind of cereal oatmeal that was delicious. Then I don't think they carry that anymore. So that was mm. kind of disappointing. They have that chicken bagel sandwich. Uh, I think it's the, uh, the, with the grilled chicken. It's, oh, that's to die for. My wife's really become a big fan of their, was oh. cob type salad or whatever. Okay. And most people do that. And mm-hmm. then I do get some people who really love In-N-Out Burger or they say it's overrated or whatever, but and what's the Canadian version of some of this stuff? Do we have a Canadian, like this would be the go-to? Mm, well, Tim Hortons is, people love Tim Hortons coffee and they have donuts and those kind of things, but that would probably be a comparable one. And there's a Swiss chalet, which is not a drive up, you know, or quick, it's kind of a sit down, but that's another distinctly Canadian uh, restaurant. And it just got good, good chicken. If you would have been with me this morning, Charles, I was having a conversation with a pastor friend of mine and we were talking, well, I was mainly the one talking about I like Tim Hortons, but their service has got to be about the absolute. I said, if there's a restaurant that's doing more to try to get people to go somewhere else, their service is not. I agree. I I had a terrible service there and I I don't gripe, but I called the manager and said, listen, you need to train your front desk people because they are terrible. So I agree with you. Amen, amen, amen. So let's go this one. I think you're a little bit older than me. So I'll be curious your answer on this. What is your favorite 
all-time trendy clothing item that you bought into hook, line, and sinker? Well, I have to be frank with you. My wife gets most of my clothes, <laughs> but if I am anywhere near trendy, it would be colored t-shirts, not white. And that's, okay. that's about it. Okay. Well, I have no style, so anything you're doing is better than what I'm doing. And my favorite question, the last one is, <laughs> or my second favorite question, who is your first celebrity crush? Haley Mills. She was in some Disney movies. I was even a part of her fan club. I had a black and white picture of her. So I, I fell in love with her when I was like seven years old. <laughs> let, let me ask you this, Charles. Uh, you're, you're how old again, if, if I can ask? 66. 66. So that's kind of a good point in life where you've, you've definitely lived and experienced some things and you've still got some time left. What do you see as your great greatest contribution to the kingdom so far? And what do you see left out there for you that you're excited about in the foreseeable future with your assignment that God has for you, at least as far as how you see it right now? Really great question. My answer maybe seem a little different, but I think the greatest contribution that I have left is an example of integrity. Mm. One of my life verses is Isaiah 32. It goes like this. A noble man makes noble plans and by noble deeds, he stands. And I think what I've left is the message by my wife that you can be a pastor and not compromise your ethics, your morals, your convictions. Now, I've made some dumb moves. I've not been a great leader. I've preached some really bad sermons. But I maintain my integrity. And so I think that's the thing that I would say, but I would hope people would say at my funeral that Charles was a person of integrity. I might not have the biggest church. I didn't get my face on in front of Christianity today. You know, I didn't get interviewed by Craig Rochelle, but I maintained my integrity. So I think that's probably what would be my greatest contribution. Well, somebody somewhere saying, forget Craig Rochelle, you did get interviewed by Jeff Pinkleton. So that's probably worth a little oh, <laughs> forgive me that's exactly right no, I, I'll tell you what I just heard a, a Kerry Newhoff interview and Kerry, Craig Rochelle and he had some great stuff to say about COVID and how they as a church he was very vulnerable talking about the good and the bad with that so I, yeah Craig Rochelle's got some good stuff to say about what's going on right now well Charles what, what do you see is what's left out there for you that you're excited about really sinking your teeth into as far as you know however many last chapters here of the book that you've got to contribute Yep. I think there are two of them. One is to help lead our church into a post-COVID world. When I came seven and a half years ago, I told the board, said, you know, I think I probably have 10 years of full-time energy left. I'm never going to retire. I'll always be serving as long as my body's healthy and my brain's working. But I I told the board, I said, you know, I think because things are going to be different the next two to three years, I think I'll probably need to tack on another year or two on top of that. So that's the first thing. I want to help our lead our church in the post-COVID world to be as healthy and strong as we can. And secondly, I mentioned I'm doing this PhD and I'm doing it uh, in practical theology. My focus is stress and the pastor. And so I'm in my uh, literature research phase. I've like got 300 articles written on stress and the pastor and related subjects. And I want to do some really sound research on what's behind pastoral stress and what can we do to help pastors. And I hope out of that will come training and speaking and a book out of that. So I think those two things would be probably probably the top of my list. I'm praying God to give me another you know, 10 or 15 years of, of good health. You know, what's interesting is you say that I'm thinking, you know, that almost seems too obvious that that should be a topic we talk more about, but those two things tied together, I don't think we do. And I'm just thinking, depending on where you land and you talked about 300 articles, wow, you know, I can't imagine the fruit that could come from that and really 
like you said, from 66 on could really make a huge difference for the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's what I'm praying that we got to use this this effort that I'm putting into this to, to really make a difference in that area because we don't talk about it enough. COVID has accentuated the stress we all feel, and especially pastors. And when we when they realize, many realize it's not going to be like it was before. Even though we you know we hear people say it's not going to be like it was before. When we really experience it, mm. I think there's going to be another wave of of stress that's going to hit pastors. Sure. Let's talk about mindfulness. This is the word that most, I think, goes with your name and your passion and your heart. And I read uh, some stuff in Christianity Today and then your own blog about that. And you were generous and sent me the book. And I told you that's going to be on my top of my list uh, for sabbatical as I read a number of books here this summer. And why is that so important? And why do we need to have more of a focus? I think, you know, as you said, there's kind of a mental, spiritual, emotional health being important to you? And then how does rest kind of play into mindfulness? Because I'm really obsessed with rest and feeling like we don't take Mark 135 and Sabbath and, and all that uh, mm-hmm. to the full length we could. And God's really dealing with me about me having the mind of Christ. And I think rest kind of plays into that. So talk about mindfulness and just why that's so important to you. And you know, you've obviously dove into this deep. So there's a lot of learning you've got and much content you've put out there. So kind of address that theme. Yeah. Well, I think I probably want to start with a story. What kind of got me onto this? We have three adult kids and about 34 years ago, they were all preschoolers. We were visiting Cheryl's home in Laurel, Mississippi. That's where the the reality show Hometown is uh, is filmed, where they kind of re- rehab these homes. But anyway, I had hot chair duty for Tiffany, who was a year at that time, year old at that time. She was our youngest, you know, one, three, and five, I think. When I lifted up the spoon to her, like the purine peaches, I noticed her left eye was quivering. Now you got kids. If you see something like that in your mm-hmm. kid, you think this is not right. Well, we kind of freaked out. There was a doctor that lived a few doors down, a pediatrician, and we called him and said, hey, can we come by? He said, sure. So he came by on Christmas Day. He said, you know, he looked at it. He said, Tiffany probably just has, has a strabismus, which is really a, an ocular, a, an eye development issue. She'll probably grow out of it. But when you get back to Atlanta, where we lived at the time, you probably want to have a you know specialist look at it. So we got back to Atlanta, got an appointment with a specialist. He looked at Tiffany and said, yeah, yeah, she's probably just has a strabismus, but we'll just take a picture just in case. So schedule a CT scan, took a CT scan. And literally on the way back, when we when I opened the door for a little rental home, I'd started a church at the time in Atlanta. The phone rang, ran to the kitchen, picked up the receiver, and it was the doctor calling back like an hour and a half later. He said, Mr. Stone, we have the scan back. He said, okay. So we found kind of the source of Tiffany's issues. And he said, she has a lesion on her brain. Now, I thought a lesion was like, oh, well, you just give her some antibiotic and it goes away. Then he made a statement that changed the next three decades of our lives. He says, your one-year-old daughter has a brain tumor. That changed us. Mm. I mean, it just radically changed us. Fast forward, she's doing well, about to graduate from seminary. She's had 10 brain surgeries, experimental devices put into her brain, taken out. She's been the most studied brain at Rush University Hospital in Chicago. But I observed Tiffany when a brain was not working right. And I began to ask myself, Jeff, like, okay, I don't think you think, you know, I have a tumor, but why is it, although I practice all these spiritual disciplines, I'm still anxious and worried and fretful at times. And that began my journey of this kind of inward journey to try to figure this out, which led me to this thing of mindfulness. I got an executive master's in the neuroscience of leadership. And my primary year two thesis was mindfulness for the Christian leader, which led to the book on mindfulness. So 
my story was going through this journey of understanding mindfulness, practicing it, and seeing what it does to our lives in such a positive way. You can ask my wife. She says, man, you're you're really a different person. I'm less stressed. I'm less worried. I'm less anxious. I, I haven't arrived. I've got a lot of work still to do. But I think it's so important for believers, and especially leaders, to practice this ancient discipline because it helps us learn to be more present to see what God's up to in the moment, helps us be more present to others, and helps us really understand our inner world of thoughts and feelings. So that's kind of a a little bit of a long answer with the story. It is incredibly important, even though, unfortunately, most of the stuff written today is kind of from a new age perspective, but Mm -hmm. Christians don't have to be afraid of it because there is a strong biblical foundation of it. I read that with some of the stuff you said with Christianity Today and on your own blog, because I do think probably at first glance, there's a little skepticism there, but you know, you don't have to hear you, listen to you, read what you put out too long to realize that's not where you're going. So obviously there's great difficulty you and Cheryl have lived through through this with your daughter, but there's also a lot that would have never happened if this wouldn't came up. So how would you say you're different as a follower of Jesus because of, you know, where you've you know, kind of ran into this mindfulness thing through tragedy. Well, Scripture says, you know, how God uses often places how God uses suffering to refine us. Now, it's not automatic. We have to choose to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He refines us. But I think for me, it has given me a greater discipline to live in the moment. You know, a lot of our worries, like some issue comes up. It's not the issue that becomes a problem, but it's the it's the the commentary we add to it. It's the interpretation we add to it. It snowballs, and now that is the issue. So it's really helped me have a disciplined mind to be present for those who who matter, whether it's the person I made at church after you know after a service, or my my son who's struggling with starting a new church, or, or the neighbor. Instead of being so self-focused and having this inner chatter all about me, I'm really fully present for others, and I'm more fully present for those gentle nudges of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So it Amen. it just enhances that sense of full presence in the moment, presence to God and His work and our relationship and those things going on inside of us. So it's profoundly impacted me to give me a greater sense of peace and presence with others. And how directly do you connect rest to that? Rest is a huge part. Now, there's two kinds of rest. There's the physical rest, you know, we, we need appropriate sleep and we need those Sabbath breaks and we need those vac- vacations. But I think there's also perhaps the most important rest is that inner rest. Mm-hmm. You know, like I say on your on your Sabbath, if somebody may just be love to run. They run two or three hours, you know, if they're a long distance runner. That's physically draining, but it's rest to their soul. Mm-hmm. Or somebody goes and they hikes for four hours. They get back, you know, they got a few blisters on their feet, but they're restored. So there's just both this physical rest that we can carve out and have our days we don't do a lot of physical stuff. But if it's not matched with a spiritual rest or soul rest or emotional rest, you don't really get the benefit. And mindfulness actually helps. There, there are two terms. There's a there's state mindfulness and trait mindfulness. Trait mindfulness is when I'm present in the moment in certain situations. But there's the trait of it, which which is a pattern of life. And I think this whole rest pattern really is a pattern of life where you can learn to take those moments, certainly those Sabbaths that you know occur up seven days, but those moments during the day when you truly take up and you rest. It may be two, three minutes, 10 minutes, 
but I think they're kind of two, two sides, the mm. physical and the spiritual, uh, emotional rest. You know, what I love about what you're sharing. I'm looking at it in my notes and I see the word rest in all capital letters. And as soon as you said the word restored, I was seeing restored it has to have rest in it, but it can't play out left mm. to, to rest. You have to add the O-R-E-D and, you know, you can rest without being restored. So I, I really appreciate what you said there because felt like Holy Spirit was meeting me in that to really allow me to see something based on your words there. So. Thanks for that that nugget there. That's a, that's great. I wrote that one down. That's great. I guess I might be paying you for that later in a book. You might take that and run with it. So, <laughs> Charles, let's close on this. What is your hope as you look at 2021 and beyond with the gospel, knowing where we kind of are culturally, you know, with whether it's race, whether it's all kinds of battles we're fighting within the church. It may be men and women in leadership, you know, homosexual stuff we're dealing yeah. with as far as the agenda or whatever there, yeah. as far yeah. as what we're dealing with with COVID. You know, we're so divisive politically, so many things going on. Where is your hope in the gospel as things mm-hmm. unfold going forward? I've kind of watched from afar here in Canada what has happened in the past several months with, you know, the, the race riots, with the social injustice issues. Uh, with the election issues and, you know, all, the, all those the group of people that burst into the Capitol and just, it's been such a tremendous heartbreak. Then you add the COVID on top of that and you have, you know, on social media where people are harping at each other. I have to remind myself and use, use the word, the hope that the gospel gives us. And without tying it down to a specific subject, here are two or three things that I hope the gospel will do for me in 2021. Number one, help me lean into the spirit on a more consistent basis. Mm. That's one. Number two, use the wisdom and experiences God has given me to lead well this year with a strong, calm presence before our church, before our board, before our staff. And the third one, kind of related to the second one, is to provide this strong, stable presence for others, like Stockdale Paradox. said, hey guys, this is tough. We're going to probably be wearing masks for another year. But look what God has already done. So providing that strong, stable presence. And then the fourth thing, I want to learn much. Now, I started this PhD at age 65. People are thinking like, why do you want to spend the money and time on that? Well, God has given me a good mind. I want my mind to honor God. So learning, it's enjoyable to me. It feels good. But if I learn specifically in this whole thing of stress in the pasture, I believe what I learn can ultimately be a benefit to others. So mm. those are kind of three or four things that I, I hope the gospel will speak into my life in this next year. Amen. Amen. Well, Charles, I appreciate your generosity of time. I appreciate you being quick to respond. I'm looking forward to diving in more. And like I said, when I go on sabbatical this summer, a holy enticing is quick and on my list. And uh, yeah, just encouraged to kind of see where God takes you. I think the stress of the pastor stuff you're working on with the PhD is going to be very useful. I can think of you know, I'm connected to a lot of pastors in, in my world with the, the gathering and connecting men to men and men to God and beyond. And I just think there's going to be a lot of fruit born from what your time and efforts going into that's going to bless a whole Thanks. lot of people more than you even dreamed or imagined. Thanks. I'm, that's that's my prayer. appreciate you sharing that. Amen. Look forward to more and maybe we can have some offline dialogue. Appreciate what you're doing. And like I said, much uh, tasting and seeing and know, knowing that God is good in your life there, Charles. Thanks, man. Good yeah. being with you. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Shine FM Podcast Network.